Section 8 of The Beginning of the Middle Ages by Richard William Church. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4 Conquest of Britain by the Saxons and Angles. Part 2 The Teutonic conquerors on the continent had long been familiar with the Romans whose masters they at last became. They admired their civilization, or at least its fruits. The nearer they came to it, the more they were fascinated by its splendor, its orders, its honors. Like Alaric's successor Altof, who began with the ambition of substituting a Gothic empire for the Roman, and ended by declaring that this was a dream, and that his highest glory must be to restore the Roman empire of law by Gothic valor. Moreover, most of them had already received Christianity, and were accustomed to hear its lessons in their mother tongue before they settled in Gaul and Italy. The subtle power of civilization enthralled and transformed them, willing and proud as they were, in spite of all their northern sense of high blood, of strength and freedom, to yield to its influences. It was not so in Britain. Angles and Saxons, Jutes and Frisians, fresh from the sea and pirate life, or from the bleak flats and sand hills of the German or Danish coasts, knew nothing of the great civilized empire from which they were separated by the breadth of Europe. They might possibly have seen Roman soldiers in the garrisons of the British shore. They knew nothing of Roman service, of Roman cities, of Roman policy and law. And they knew nothing of Roman religion and owned no reverence for it. When, therefore, they settled in their new homes, there was nothing to enter into competition or conflict with the customs, ideas, moral, and social rules which had governed them in their old ones. Of all things Latin, as of all things British, they made a clean sweep. It was foreign to them, it was Welsh, and they would have none of it. Other German invaders had bowed before the majesty of Christian bishops, and had often even in the storm of an assault or the sack of a captured town, respected Christian churches. The English conquerors were fiercely heathen and hated Christianity as the religion of those whom it was their work to destroy from off the land which was to be the land of the English. Clergy and monks perished with their brethren in the fury of the invasion, and the planting of the English nation was the utter destruction of the Christian religion within its borders. It was under no indirect influences from a subject population that the English were to unlearn their ancient barbarism. Roman laws, which retained so much of their power on the continent, did nothing here. Out of their own customs, their own strong and broad notions of right, their own spontaneous efforts after a reasonable and suitable order of life, unaffected by foreign schooling or by imitation of foreign ways, losing perhaps some of the benefits of foreign experience, the chiefs of the new English kingdoms worked out principles and institutions which were to be the foundation of a political organization as solid, as elastic, as enduring as that of Rome. And with respect to their religion, they did not take it by a kind of contagion from a surrounding and conquered race, more instructed and more elevated in its nobler specimens, but more corrupted in its average ones. 
England was an untouched field for the teachers of Christianity. Its religion had to be begun from the very beginning, as in our day among the heathen tribes of Africa and New Zealand. The English were converted, as afterwards, the Germans, Scandinavians, and most of the Slav races were converted, entirely from without. A century and a half had passed, and from adventurers and invaders, they had become at home in their several shares of England before Christianity appealed to them. Its appeal came from many and different quarters. It was the appeal almost entirely, not of force but of persuasion and example, and it gained its hold on them with singular rapidity and power. Augustine, a missionary ambassador from Gregory the Great, the far-off bishop of Rome, the venerable but dimly known person who in religion answered to the Roman emperor in things worldly, won the ear after hesitation and serious thought of one of the English kings, Ethelbert of Kent, who ruled from 565 to 616. In the same corner of the island where the heathen invasion had begun, Augustine made good a footing in the court and among the people, and laid the foundation of the great sea of Canterbury, destined to be the second sea of the West, 597 to 601. Paulinus, another Italian companion of Augustine, preached in the north, and in 627 baptized Edwin, the powerful king of Northumbria, at York. In the north, the missionaries and teachers came also from the wonderful Irish church, at this time, the 6th and 7th centuries, keeping up its peculiar traditions, cherishing learning and a high enthusiasm, in complete isolation from the rest of Christendom, and sending forth its missionaries far afield with a spirit unknown elsewhere. It sent forth not only St. Columba in 565 to the Picts and St. Aidan to the English Northumbrians in 635, but St. Columban in 595 to the Burgundian Jura, the Helvetian Zurich, and the Italian cloisters of Babio, St. Gaul in 614, to the Alamans of the Lake of Constance, and other less known comrades and friends to the lands of the Franks and Bavarians, to Glarus and Cua, and the highest sources of the Rhine. The apostles at once of the gospel and of settled life of husbandry and tillage. In the great kingdom of Mercia, with its frequent dependency, the land of the East Saxons, it was bishops of the school of Iona and their English disciples, who founded and built up in the middle of the seventh century the church. The Burgundian Felix in 627 preached to the East Anglians. A bishop from Italy, Berinus, in 635, sent by Pope Honorius, converted the English of Wessex. A teacher from the north, Wilfred of York, from 664 to 709, was the apostle of the South Saxons. In the second half of the 7th century, these separate efforts began to present the aspect of an organized unity under the twenty years' vigorous rule of Archbishop Theodore, from 668 to 690. The Greek of Tarsus, who with his friend Hadrian the African, had been sent from Rome, the first archbishop, says Bede, whom all the English church obeyed. Like the conquest, 
the conversion of England spread from different independent centres. The work began from them at different times, and went on in different ways, and with varying rates of progress, till at last boundaries met and became confluent, and the separate kingdoms found themselves prepared to be fused into one people. And the unity of religion attained earlier, though not without difficulties of its own, than the unity of the nation contributed most powerfully to make Northumbrians and Mercians and West Saxons into Englishmen. With fluctuations of success and reaction, with one great and terrible struggle in the middle of England against the new religion under the Mercian king Penda, 624 to 655, the English kingdoms had within a century after the landing of Augustine become Christian. Of this great change and its incidents, a singularly curious and interesting account is given in Bede's history. The causes of it were of more than one kind, but in the forefront must undoubtedly be placed the breadth and greatness of Christian ideas and the purity, courage, enthusiasm, and indefatigable self-devotion, though not always innocent of superstition, of the Christian teachers. Supposed miracles and, alas, sometimes evidently fraudulent ones, played their part in recommending the divine message. The sanction and authority of chiefs who were trusted and honored doubtless went for much with their people. But at bottom it was the teaching itself, with the evident truth of much of it, its nobleness, its high solemnities, its promises, and the consistency of its teachers, which conquered to its obedience a people whose customs and whose circumstances were strongly against it. In England as abroad, Christianity won its way not merely and not mainly by the support of kings, not merely, though unhappily in part, by the worse aid of superstition and fraud, but because it was a gospel for the poor, the slave, the miserable, the ruined, a defiance to the proud, a warning to the great, a bridle to the mighty. And once received, it was received with no half a mind or half-hearted allegiance. The Anglo-Saxon Church had its strange anomalies, its deep blots, its repulsive features. Like other churches, it had to deal in its course both with grave questions and with petty quarrels. It had its rise and prime and its deep decline. But in its best days, it had a straightforward seriousness of conviction and purpose and a fire and thoroughness of faith among its early converts, which are very much its own. Bede, like Gregory of Tours, reflects a state of society which is wild, uncontrolled, violent, full of battle and death. But the characteristic passages of Bede are passages which are full of genuine religious or moral interest, and which bear the mark of deep feeling and sympathy in the writer. The characteristic passages of Gregory's History of the Franks are tragedies of dark and dreadful crime, to which the stories of Oedipus and Lear are tame, and they are told with unmoved calmness and composure. End of Section 8